podcast one production. Welcome to Understate Lawyer X. For 16 years, I've been working on one story above all others, Melbourne's gangland war. The conflict between rival crime factions claimed more than 30 lives between 1998 and 2006. It's only now that all the pieces of this story are coming together in a Royal Commission. Victoria Police would have you believe that they brought peace to the streets through hard work and innovative investigation techniques. Faced with the truth, a string of crooks confessed to murders and much more. A wall of silence had come tumbling down. But that's not what happened at all. In reality, the cops made a desperate deal with a barrister named Nicola Gobbo, better known as Lawyer X. She agreed to inform on her underworld clients, breaching the bond of secrecy between lawyer and client. Gobbo knew this was wrong. She once described her informer role in these terms. The general ethics of all this is fucked. And she was dead right. Victoria Police sanctioned and encouraged many of Gobbo's activities, as long as she continued to inform on her clients. Some of the lurid detail has been exposed in the Royal Commission. What emerges is not just a barrister who crossed the line, who cast aside her ethics to put the bad guys away. She was enmeshed in a drug cartel, while simultaneously betraying her police handlers. She was a double agent who worked both sides of the street. A former criminal, a trusted insider known as the Horse Whisperer, has been in contact with Gobbo's former clients in jail. Well, the Frankenstein analogy. The Victorian police were Frankenstein, and she was the monster. And the monster got out of control. It's alive! Absolutely. It's alive and dangerous. There's a profound sense of shock and anger at Gobbo's treachery. In this episode, I'll examine the toxic relationships that underpinned this debacle and how close Nicola Gobbo came to being murdered. David McCulloch, who appeared in the Jailhouse Lawyer podcast, was in Barwon Jail at the time and observed events as they unfolded. So Carl was going to have her killed? Certainly harm. To what degree? I might just add, precedent tells us that Carl didn't have people slapped around. He had them killed. Well, you can't argue with history, can you? I met Nicola Gobbo in December 2003. Her client, Carl Williams, and his gang from the western suburbs were at war with the Carlton crew, which had run crime in Melbourne for decades. A few days earlier, a very senior crook had been gunned down outside his house and Williams was the prime suspect in ordering the hit. I was after an interview and Gobbo agreed to deliver a letter to Williams on my behalf. She was like no other lawyer I'd met before. She was dressed in a figure-hugging power suit. Her shoulder-length hair was bleached platinum blonde and she sported a deep fake tan. Just days earlier, she'd given a speech at the christening of Carl's infant daughter. 
She looked more like one of the gangland wives than a lawyer. When I met her at a cafe in town, she seemed jaded and tense. She was chain-smoking as she described Carl's persecution by the cops. She saw plots and conspiracies everywhere. She warned there were highly sensitive issues at play and questioned why I'd want to get involved. But she vouched for me and I got my interview. That's how much Carl trusted her back then. Within a few years, Williams got life in jail for four murders after key members of his gang gave statements against him. This all happened with Gobbo's encouragement and connivance. Williams was reputed to have ordered the death of ten rivals. The last hit was going to be on his former lawyer, Gobbo. David McCulloch has been watching this Royal Commission very closely. A number of his friends and associates were clients of Gobbo. I read every document that is uploaded to the website. I sit at the hearings that are live-streamed and I then summarise thousands of pages for legal counsel who are involved. And so seeing it from that perspective, there may be more to come out of this Royal Commission in relation to people like Lawyer X. There may be more revelations as to exactly what role she played in the gangland war. You and other people I know know a lot more about Gobbo than's coming out in the Royal Commission. Yes. How much, as a percentage, from what you've seen so far, how much of her activities have been covered? 10%? 20? 10, 10 to 15. If the stories that I heard through the years are correct, this was a lady who I think you would have to say was not of sound mind. Already one of Gobbo's former clients, an alleged murderer, Farouk Orman, has been freed after it was revealed Gobbo had encouraged a key witness to talk to police. Others are hoping they too could have a chance at freedom. I have people write to me from all prisons in the state who had dealings with her in the past and ask if there's anything they can do. I now look for those lawyers who are prepared to take them on a pro bono basis or I'll tell them to write to legal aid. To understand how crucial it was for Victoria Police when Nicola Gobbo rolled, you have to go back to the early 2000s and to understand the power dynamics at play. Tony Mockbell was then one of Australia's most influential organised crime figures, a major producer and importer of amphetamines and cocaine. He joined forces with Carl Williams and his gang and they were making millions. But in 2001, both were arrested on drugs charges and were in custody, along with five others. However, Mockbell held an ace up his sleeve. He claimed to have evidence of corruption in Victoria's drug squad. Two drug squad cops were sent to see Mockbell at Port Phillip Prison. This is a conversation never heard before. My name's Detective Sergeant Martin Allison of the Victoria Police Drug Squad and I'm in the car park of the Port Phillip Prison at Laverton in the company with Detective Senior Sergeant Wayne Strawn. The uh, purpose of us, our visit here is to attempt to speak with Tony Mockbell regarding the criminal activities of the group he was involved in and any uh, alleged police corruption. The cocky Mockbell had a deal for Marty Allison and Wayne Strawn. That was more like an ultimatum. He wanted to get bail, go back to business. He could help them solve the gangland war. You want this night we have in that one? Yes. Well, 
I've got about seven cases here. Now, this is an option for you blokes, right? You've got Carl Williams and all them blokes. Yep. There's about now three out of four other cases here. I can put them all together. They'll all nod their head, as long as everyone's reasonable. You just want to put something together, that's the deal. And I can tell you, everything's underneath the carpet. This was more than a bluff. There was a nightmare playing out in Victoria Police's drug squad. A scheme to find drug manufacturers in the underworld by supplying precursor chemicals through informers had gone horribly wrong. A string of cops had turned bad and began making their own side deals. Mockbell had been a beneficiary of this harebrained scheme and could sink the cops with what he knew. And I can tell you something. It's fucking cool. If you ask him, he'll be all charged. Even you. Mockbell was addressing Wayne Strawn when he said the words, even you. And it turned out that Strawn was found to be corrupt. He would serve seven years jail for supplying chemicals to the underworld. In 2001... Mockbell was offering to keep his mouth shut in return for light sentences for himself, Williams and the others on the drugs charges. If we look at a reasonable sentence, like, you know, within reason, this way here, the community saves a stack of money. What do you call a reasonable sentence? Right, they must. The APP won't buy that one. Might Strawn wanted more. For Mockbell to tell him who'd broken into the offices of the drug squad in 1996 and stolen sensitive informer files. But Mockbell would not turn informer. I'd like to get something extra as well. There's got to be someone there that we can pinch that you can tell me where you can. There's got to be a burglary that occurred at one stage and I spoke to you that shortly afterwards you can point me towards it. But they're the things I'm interested in. Mockbell wouldn't inform on his friends and colleagues, but he was prepared to use their freedom as a bargaining chip. He claimed they would all dutifully plead guilty, except David McCulloch, the jailhouse lawyer. McCulloch was facing 14 years in jail on charges cooked up by Wayne Strawn. Strawn had allegedly ordered that money be planted in McCulloch's apartment. McCulloch was agitating for a royal commission into the police. It took another 18 years. There was no way I was going to stop the campaign for a royal commission. Mr Mockbell appeared to want everything to go back to normal, but the corrupt mess in Victoria needed to be cleaned up. It's taken nearly 20 years and 13-plus of those I was incarcerated, and the gobble story is but a symptom of how sick and corrupt the state of justice has become. In the end, Mockbell didn't get his deal, and corruption allegations came thick and fast over the next few years, which rocked Victoria Police. A string of cops went to jail, including Strawn. Others stayed free solely because of lawyers like Gobbo. In April 2004, Mockbell boasted of his power in another meeting with police. He said Marty Allison had refused to deal with him and that had landed his partner, Wayne Strawn, in jail. This is an actor playing Tony Mockbell reading from a transcript of that conversation. That fucking silly Marty Allison, he's a fucking goose. That's why Strawn's in there, okay? Wayne Strawn's in there if it wasn't for fucking Marty Allison. I said this to Strawn and Marty Allison. Marty Allison goes, no, get fucked, none of this, nah. Jumped up and down like a fucking goose, right? 
This scenario was a disaster for the community. Mockbell, Williams and others were given bail that lasted up to five years while the corrupt police were prosecuted. Victoria Police avoided a royal commission but stood by powerless as the crooks walked out of jail. With the help of their lawyers like Gobbo, they resumed their trade and the conflict between rival factions exploded into murder on the streets. On Valentine's Day 2002, Gobbo began acting as Mockbell's barrister and over the next few years, she helped him craft his strategy and to make similar offers to police. Like the police, Mockbell wanted the killings to stop, but his reasons were different. Murder attracted too much attention. It was bad for business. In the beginning, Gobbo informed on the murder cases, not the drug trafficking matters. She knew where her money came from. She wasn't in a hurry to put Mockbell away, at least not then. At the end of the day, if you can take the strength away from the streets, you're going to have a good grip of the fucking streets. I'll tell you now, homicide will have a massive grip of the streets. Well, I'm saying take the strength away from the streets. That's a fucking massive favour. It was self-serving, of course. With the strength off the streets, Mockbell could go back to business. His competition either dead or in jail. He held all the cards. And if it all turned bad, then he would just flee the country. He had Gobbo to help him read what was going on inside Victoria Police. There is no doubt that she was passing information in both directions. And she was very careful as to what was said and when. So, when Gobbo agreed to turn informer, it was an offer too good to refuse. He was one of the best-connected barristers in town, the niece of a former Supreme Court judge, offering to do the bidding of the police. With her help, they could bring Mockbell and others down before he brought them down. Her snitching began informally in 2004, when police had many of the top bosses and their hitmen in custody. My personal view is the gangland war on the streets of Melbourne wasn't solved on the streets of Melbourne. It was solved and resolved in the corridors of Barwon and in the management units and the pressure that came to bear on a number of individuals with the help of Gobbo, with the help of other lawyers potentially. Did you see the pressure cooker atmosphere and the way that the strategies that were employed by corrections assisted in the outcome, and the outcome might not have been necessarily in the public interest. Perhaps the outcome initially could be seen to have been in the public interest. The gangland war stopped. However, in stopping them, innocent people were imprisoned for lengthy periods of time. It's now time to address that. It's not just those that were on the periphery of the gangland wars, it's their families. If those people are innocent, those families are suffering year after year, emotionally and financially, seeking avenues of appeal, which is costly. We now know that some of those convictions were unjust. Don't let's delay on those that perhaps may have been innocent. Yes, there were innocent people who went to jail, potentially, but there were also guilty people who weren't convicted according to the standards and our laws that we expect. There was a, an attitude of expediency to what went on. And I think what we're seeing in the Royal Commission is that playing out. That's not to say that we should let that go because the system, its integrity, is a matter of interest to us all. Well, it certainly is because 
Perhaps I come from a different perspective from you and those who have never been to prison. But at some stage, that innocent person could be you or some of those people who have never been to prison or even worse, family members. That's why we must address it and see that it never happens again. And the process has got to be transparent. I mean, each and every defendant in Victoria should know how the case against them is compiled in order to defend themselves. And clearly, the operations of Nicola Gobbo and Victoria Police have meant that that's not the case. You were seeing this from the inside, from Barwon Jail. What sort of discussions did you hear about Gobbo and others, I guess, in this system? It was really mixed feelings. She represented a lot of people who were doing a lot of years in Barwon. Some still trusted her, some declared her. Prison slang for declared her as being an informer. A dog. And some who just couldn't bring themselves to believe because of their closeness as lawyer, client, and in some cases perhaps socially closer. She was more than just a lawyer, wasn't she? I think that was that was why it was hard to believe. More than just a lawyer in what way? And to these people, the relationship was not just as a lawyer. She'd crossed the line. Oh, absolutely. Gobbo not only represented and betrayed clients, but she was also prepared to jump into bed with them. The Royal Commission has heard allegations. She had sexual liaisons with Mockbell and other crime figures, but also police officers. It was part of her tradecraft as a double agent, it seemed. She was romantically linked to more people than possibly Rudolf Valentino was in his day. I have to ask you, Dave, were you involved with that? <laughs> no, I can categorically say I wasn't. That's not to say that she didn't call me. She did at my office one day, 2003, 2004. I had only seen her in passing and nodded to her throughout the court periods years before. But she phoned one evening and said, Hi, David, it's Nicola Gobble. I just wonder if you want to come round for a red. I hear you like red. And I had heard just little pieces of information along the way that uh, she had a lot of associations with a number of people from both sides of the fence. So I said, look, I'm so busy, but thanks anyway. If I get time one day, I'll, I'll give you a ring. That was the extent of it. But interestingly enough, whilst monitoring the Royal Commission, I've noticed that my name has come up when she's been interviewed by two policemen in relation to what do you know about McCulloch and how's McCulloch going and pushing for a Royal Commission into the drug squad back then, which I was doing. So whilst I say I certainly had no involvement with her, did she have involvement with me is the question. Who knows? It may have been the best declining of an invitation with a blonde I will ever have made in my life. <laughs> it won't happen again. <laughs> Let's explore the detail of one scenario from 2003 which typified Gobbo's modus operandi. It's a web of sex, drugs, money, crooks and corrupt police. There must have been days where she could scarcely believe the mess she'd made of a once promising life. On the night of the 2003 AFL Grand Final, a burglary was underway that would change the course of the gangland war. The victim was Tony Mockbell, who was back in business full steam after getting bail on drugs charges the year before. The suburban home in Dublin Street, East Oakley, was the base for a pill manufacturing and distribution operation. You never saw Tony Mockbell there, but it was his business. 
Mockbell's team were buying pills in Sydney and then repressing them for sale in Melbourne. There was up to a million dollars in cash and thousands of pills on the premises that night. The police already had the place under physical surveillance, but not that evening. It was a call from a neighbour that alerted the cops. In fact, one of the burglars was a police officer. David Mieschel was a drug squad officer. His accomplice was a career criminal, Terry Hodson, who was also a police informer. And Mieschel was his handler. The informer, Terry Hodson's lawyer, was Nicola Gobbo. After his arrest, the first call that David Mieschel made was to his crew leader at the drug squad, Sergeant Paul Dale. Dale was later charged with Hodson and Mieschel. Dale also became enmeshed with Gobbo as well, calling her his legal advisor. The Dublin Street operation was run by a Mockbell lieutenant named Assam Ahmed, otherwise known as Adam Ahmed. He was arrested at another location the day after the burglary at Dublin Street. And who did Ahmed meet a few hours before his arrest? His lawyer, Nicola Gobbo. According to Ahmed, the relationship with his barrister was also personal, as he later told David McCulloch. I understood at the time that they were engaged. I was of the belief that he had attended family dinners and so he was accepted by the family. At none other than Sir James Gobbo's house, I believe. That was the understanding. That's what was told to me, yes. One of the family? He was one of the family. He was regarded as one of the family. He was a very personable chap. Yet months after Ahmed's arrest, Gobbo was discussing with police how she could betray Ahmed and use her fiancé as a means of bringing down Mockbell's gang. I've obtained confidential notes from the diary of one of Gobbo's handlers. Gobbo is referred to as Human Source, abbreviated to HS. Asking about HS seeing Ahmed earlier in the night before his arrest, three or four hours before, HS asks why ask that, because your conversation with him before that may directly relate to the allegation. Gobbo was happy to disparage Ahmed as being of low intelligence and a liar. Ahmed is not bright. IQ of 71. Ahmed's version in the record of interview is obviously full of lies. Can HS lay foundation for them to see Ahmed? Complicated. Doesn't want to appear that HS is acting for police. She goes on to say that Tony Mockbell owed Ahmed $1 million, but that Ahmed wasn't working for Mockbell when Dublin Street was burgled. Evidence before the Royal Commission indicates this was false, which suggests that Gobbo was protecting Mockbell, her number one client, and Ahmed was expendable. In this excerpt, she's asked whether she'll make a statement about Ahmed's activities. HS would have to guarantee HS safety, which she can't do, and guarantee what questions would be asked. While all this treachery was going on, Gobbo was also managing the legal affairs of Terry Hodson, the other burglar in the Dublin Street break-in. Eventually, she persuaded him to cooperate with police and to incriminate his co-accused in the Dublin Street burglary, police officers David Mieschel and Paul Dale. After the burglary, Dale began to meet Gobbo and he told the commission their relationship became a sexual one. Gobbo has denied this, but Terry Hodson told the cops the same thing. In a diary note, another cop said that Hodson claimed that the blonde lady, Gobbo, is sleeping with the three-striper, Dale. In May 2004, this story took an even darker twist. 
when the informer Hodson and his wife Christine were murdered in their home. It was later revealed that Gobbo had set up secret meetings between Paul Dale and Carl Williams, who told police that he had arranged the execution of the Hodsons on behalf of Dale. This was key evidence in the murder prosecution against Dale. However, the case collapsed after the murder of Carl Williams inside Barwon Jail in 2010. The charges against Dale were discontinued. Gobbo continued to inform on her clients. When Mockbell fled to Greece in 2006, he unwisely continued to communicate with Gobbo. She passed on information to her handlers, which she claims helped them bring Tony Mockbell home. By 2005-06, rumours were circulating in Barwon about Gobbo's remarkable double life. An inmate who we've already met, Adam Ahmed, began telling people he was in love with Gobbo. Another inmate, known as the Horse Whisperer, was close to Ahmed in jail. He was saying that that was his fiancée, and when he was got out, and they were going to get married, and later on I found out he was saying that she'd had a child and it was his. Ahmed was an integral part of Tony Mockbell's gang. As we know, one of his roles was to oversee a drug house in Oakley South that was linked to Mockbell. Ahmed was making big money from drugs and later told inmates that he and his father had invested cash in numerous properties through Gobbo. They were in partnership, in love and investment-wise. So. so he'd been channeling money from his activities to her? One, one could never say conclusively from what activities. What you drew from it was that he, he was giving her money? Certainly, certainly. Yeah. He, he was investing with his fiancée for the future. And what were they buying? Certainly properties, because quite often you would be quite happy to talk about the fact that they were looking at a, a, a shop, for example, or I think an office at some stage. In documents before the Royal Commission, Gobbo has tried to dismiss Adam Ahmed as a stalker. But clearly, that's not how he saw the relationship. And when word reached Carl Williams that Gobbo was an informer, Ahmed did nothing to distance himself from her. In fact, he tried to save her from an executioner's bullet. There was an inmate there who, who, who came to me very distressed. Adam Ahmed. He knew I knew Carl well, and he had heard through the grapevine that Carl had been declaring her as a police informer, and he had a romantic liaison with her. I think he may even have been engaged. Did he have specific concerns about what Carl might do or organised to have done? Yes. He was concerned that harm would come to his fiancée. So Carl was going to have her killed? Certainly harm. To what degree? That would have been a concern of the inmate at the time. I might just add, precedent tells us that Carl didn't have people slapped around. He had them killed. Well, you can't argue with history, can you? No. So I did get word to Carl that I believed that this inmate truly believed that she would not do that and that he had spoken to her and she had stated categorically it's a complete and utter fabrication. I then asked Carl, can you just wait until you're 100% sure on life before you consider any aspects of challenging or action? And uh, I was then thanked because apparently Carl acceded to my request and that period blew over and that was that particular time. So she would never have known how close she came to having someone knock on her door with evil intent? On that occasion, she would probably not have known, no. 
she was lucky that you were there. It was fortuitous. After Carl Williams' death, Adam Ahmed's concerns turned from Gobbo's well-being to how much money she'd fleeced from him. He claimed to David McCulloch that the pair had invested in properties together and that he was owed $1 million. There was a situation whereby he was trying to recoup some of that. The horse whisperer. Well, you give him some money back, want it all back. <laughs> good luck trying to collect it. Well, good luck trying to find it. <laughs> they were investing in properties down Gippsland Way, buying housing commission. Maui. Well, we know from the Royal Commission that the police and whoever else is involved at that level have removed all records of property ownership by Nicola Gobble. So it's fair to say then that Victoria Police has provided a cover over this relationship? That's certainly a reasonable inference in all the circumstances, Mr Shan. Ahmed's status has taken a hit due to his association with Gobbo. He's free now, but carries the stain of her snitching. So given what's happened to him, Horse Whisperer, long sentence, his girlfriend's done him a million bucks, do you have a bit of sympathy for him? No. Why? If you're going to get into bed with a creature like that, why would you have any sympathy? What do they say? Birds of a feather flock together? This story demonstrates how deeply embedded Gobbo was the risks she ran on behalf of Victoria Police and what the cops were prepared to do in return for their star informant. Here, an actor reads from a letter Gobbo wrote to a senior police officer. To try to encompass my actual value, reliability and work for Victoria Police in any summary is immensely difficult because from September 16, 2005, I spoke to my handlers on a daily basis, often seven days a week for a couple of years. There are approximately 5,500 information reports generated from the information that I provided to police. There was no topic, criminal, organised crime group or underworld crime that was off limits during the many debriefing sessions that occurred or during the years that followed. In episode two, we'll examine Lawyer X's claim she played a leading role in bringing murderers to justice and ending the Victorian gangland war. Understate is written and produced by Adam Shan. Audio editing, mixing and original score by Matt Nikolic. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. Associate producer is Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nollywe Shand. Understate is a Podcast One Australia production.